Hello, friends, and welcome to our SBT Sunday teachings. My name is Venerable Tarpa. Before we begin, let's take a moment to appreciate our community gathered here today. Today, I feel fortunate to sit as a member of this kind community in the safety and security of like-minded friends, sharing this present moment with others dedicated to the cultivation of goodness. Today, I'm grateful for the direction and support that this community provides a community worthy of my time and commitment, a community where my efforts have meaning, purpose, and are appreciated. Today, I'm thankful for this community of awakening, a place to gain the knowledge and skills to improve my life, a family, a home, and a sanctuary for all of us seeking refuge from the storm. And as conscientious practitioners, we must recognize our responsibility to the world to strive to live skillfully while helping others to do the same, to strive to live in balance and harmony with nature and others, to strive to gain mastery over our minds and embody our true benevolent nature, to expand our hearts and minds, transcending our shared human limitations, to not intentionally harm sentient life or our planet, and to maturely accept and embrace the reality of our situation while striving to improve it. Again, welcome to our Sunday teaching. Today we will be exploring and giving the conclusion to our cliffhanger of a teaching last week. We're going to be exploring self, the concept of self in Buddhism and how it's seen through especially a secular Buddhist view. But before we do that, let's review a little bit of what we studied on last week's class on not-self. So um, we talked about uh, the idea that all of the confusion that really comes about on the subject of non-self and self and non-soul, um, is uh, all about the interpretation of a single term. And it's the Pali term, Atta, or in Sanskrit, Atma. In Jainism, it's Jiva. And, um, and in, these, uh, in the uh, Hindu or Vedic tradition and the Jainist, Jainist tradition, this word Atta is seen as a permanent, unchanging, essential essence that's at the heart of all living beings, often re referred to as a true self, which although in Western terminology, we would clearly refer to as a soul. And I think the, the big debate is, uh, people can never make up their mind whether to call it a soul or a self. So if we, if we look past the, the word uh, and we go right towards the definition, when we talk about that permanent, unchanging, essential essence, in the West, we would call that a soul, in Western religion anyways, where in Western psychology, that would not be the definition of self. And we're going to talk about what self is today. The conclusion of, this, of the debate uh, led many scholars to assert that the phrase, there is no self in Buddhism, to be the greatest of all fake Buddhist quotes. Isn't that fascinating, huh? That phrase, you might hear it often, that within Buddhism, there is no self, right? 
but that is considered to be the greatest of all fake Buddhist quotes, that the Buddha never said it. And it's, it's actually a complete misunderstanding of the subject. Does anyone have any questions about last week's complex subject of no self? And we also talked about the aggregates last week as well. It was a lot to take in, huh? David? <clears throat> yeah, that, that's interesting that um, this has kind of come more through the West um, about um, Buddhism says there's no self, because I first heard, heard that from um, Sami Ling. You know the Buddhist center in Sami Ling? Yeah, I've been there. Yeah, right. Well, I first heard that a long time ago um, from the teacher in Sami Ling, who's, you know, wasn't Western uh, at all. So uh, I'm, well, I'm just sharing that, that that was from a traditional Buddhist saying that, you know, there is no self. We are a long convoluted conversation that I didn't understand. And that's what I learned in the monastery as well. If I understood what you said, that traditional Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism in particular, and the tantric tradition in particular, posits no self. Right. That the self. But again, the problem is is semantic. It's all about, well, what do they mean by that word atta? Right? Now, some translate it as meaning self, but when you ask them what they mean by self, they'll give you the definition for soul. So if you were to press that teacher and you said, what do you mean by self? He would have told you what we just read. He would say, well, there is no permanent essential essence in people. So it's really just semantics around that word, right? Because that definition, we don't call self in the West. You know, anything resembling that we refer to as soul. In the West, especially in modern psychology, self is something different. And we're going to talk about what that is today. So I agree with you, David. Uh, I, I was also taught the same. Uh, but modern scholars, Bhikkhu Bodhi, uh, Stephen Batchelor, many others have all seemed to rally around the point that this is a misunderstanding. Uh, originally in the early Buddhist teachings, the early sutras, it seems like it was taught as, as, as more like a soul. And then somehow it changed and now people are going back to the original thoughts. Yeah. So, yeah, it can be quite complex here. Okay, so with that said, let's move on to exa exactly what we're talking about. And that is, hey, what the heck is this self thing we're talking about? So there is so many different views on what this is. If you remember, we talked about yesterday, the Buddha's golden silence. The Buddha didn't like to answer the question. The Buddha didn't think it was productive for people to be involved in the question. He thought it was a distraction from practice. And he thought, whether you believe in uh, an idea of this or not, neither one of them is productive, right? But the Buddha was always trying to get people to practice 
and have their own direct experience of these things instead of just sitting around questioning him about the mysteries of the universe, right? The Buddha recognized some things people need for practice. There's wisdom and understanding of things that people need for their own personal practice. But he would always kind of make sure that that didn't go too far. He what did he used to refer to as a, a nest of thorns that people get trapped in. And uh, so, yeah, he tried to get people to, to move away, away from it. Um, there's been, uh, you know, we talked about yesterday, one of the big uh, variations and views is between Hinduism and Buddhism. And the reason it's so interesting is because they're opposites where Hinduism believes that, uh, and I say the word Hinduism, but let's keep in mind, Hinduism isn't a single religion, it's a family of religions with vastly different belief systems. The Vandanta on one end to more traditional Brahmanism and Vedic uh, uh, traditions on the other, but generally uh, Hinduism sees the um, what we would call enlightenment as the recognition of the the uncovering recognition understanding of the true self and in buddhism it's the opposite it's recognizing that there is no let's use the word soul that there is no soul to recognize so you can imagine a huge contrast so in india with all these religions being side by side throughout the centuries many views have gone back and forth there's been buddhist views that were very similar to that hindu view where where a tradition started to believe in this idea of a soul and that somehow this soul is what is reborn the buddha in this in the uh, in the sutras uh is very clear that that's a wrong view in fact he has a he scolds one practitioner for actually saying that. And he says, when have you ever heard me to say such a thing? So there's been so many different views. And then the Mahayana come in with a stronger influence on emptiness. And then this idea of emptiness starts to kind of, kind of morph into uh, changing the way uh, we look at self again looking more like a soul though nargarjuna seems to have a, a view that's going to be similar to ours other other uh, uh, mahayana scholars didn't so um just every view imaginable has been in play from one time to another you know you have the mahayana for those are, that are practitioners or studiers uh the yogacara tradition they actually got to the point where they became basically nihilist they believe that nothing actually physically exists it's all just an illusion in our minds so there's been many 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 different views those aren't important to us right now. We want to get down to, to, the, uh, to the views that seem uh, appropriate here. I also, uh, I think it was David that says, oh, next week you're going to give us the conclusion, uh, the, 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 the correct view of what this is. And I said, yes, but we, we have to keep in mind that, um, you know, what the truth is, is, is still just a matter of an opinion. Every, all of the different traditions have different views. Zen is a very different view than the Theravada and the Tantric tradition is completely different than either one of those schools. So what I can do today is I can share a little bit about the different views. 
uh, and share with you my own choice of which one I believe. But like always, SBT doesn't tell people what to believe, what to think, or what to do. We leave that to you. We believe that you're smart enough to figure it out for yourselves. And of course, have a nice debate with the group and, and figure it out. So I'm gonna be giving you some information and um, I feel strongly about this view, but it's just my own personal view. So first let's talk about what the self is. So in layman's terms, the self is an extraordinary and vital mechanism that ties together all aspects of our existence, the mind, the body, uh, experiences, our memories, perspectives, perception, feeling, evaluations, am I leaving anything out, um, including, uh, including stringing together all the unique individual moments that make up our existence into one concept. So, Everything we know in existence, the self puts it all into one concept, and that is I, right? I, me, mine, right? This is self. Um, but with that now, that sounds nice, but within that, exactly what are we talking about uh, as self? So again, there's been many views, and one of the popular modern spiritual views, I would say, not necessarily Buddhist, is is that we are awareness and when i heard this i thought it was lovely and I, I i was in school at the time and i remember going to my teacher and saying i think i read it in an eckhart tolle book that what we are is the awareness right uh you're not the thinker of your thoughts but instead you are that which is aware of your thought and thinking you're the awareness behind everything it's very pretty right but of course the buddha would disagree Instead, the Buddha asserted that you are the subjectivity within that awareness. Now, what's subjectivity, what does that mean? That's the I, me, my, right? We are the subject. So the subjectivity in that awareness, the I, me, my of your experiences. I am thinking, I am listening, I am eating. I am contemplating. So the awareness is you're aware of sound, right? But self is I am aware of sound, right? So it's a slight distinction, but it's a very important one. So Buddhism asserts that you're not that awareness, or they would often use the word consciousness. Consciousness exists between the organ, the sense organ, and the object that creates an awareness. That's not you, right? That's a, that's a mechanism of, of, of our awareness, how our awareness works, how our senses work. You're that subjectivity, right? And, and I, that might be a, a little hard to get your mind around, but I think as we talk a little bit, it'll start to trickle in. You are the subjectivity, identity, or narrative within any given experience. That's really fascinating, isn't it? All right? And so to understand this a little bit more, uh, there's a great story that Buddhism shares about the birth of this kind of subjectivity, the birth of self, which of course is just a story because 
Buddhism believes that the self is, is beginningless and endless. But the story goes is that awareness exists and at some point awareness becomes self-aware. Awareness realizes itself is aware. So awareness, the idea arises within the awareness, I am, right? <laughs> so we can call it self-awareness. That's the subjectivity. I, I am aware. So before it was just, 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 just a general awareness, it becomes I am aware. This is the story of the birth of self. And they call it Yul and Yulchen in Tibetan. And it means object and object possessor, which means thing and the person observing the thing. Thing doesn't exist without person observing the thing. Person observing the thing doesn't exist without thing. Right? And people that are in the quantum mechanics love, uh, love this theory, and it, they, it goes a long way with that. So now, this idea of subjectivity, identity, or narrative, Tibetans call it the mere I. Mere meaning merely, only. Only I, right? So within that awareness, self-conscious, self-awareness happens. I am arises. That I am is called the mere I. And we could call the mere I, I just like to use the word identity because that's truly what it is. But it's again, that subjectivity, that narrative, like in a, like in a story, right? The narrative, I am, mere I. And it's our personal subjectivity in each moment and each activity. So I'll let that sink in for a second. That's weird, isn't it? Okay, let's, let's d dive a little deeper in the rabbit hole and see if we can get that to make a little bit more sense. So I once wrote a nice affirmation and it's not in the SBT practice guide because I, I wanted to add it in our next uh, series of curriculum. But nevertheless, I'm going to share it here and I'll post it for everybody to see. Um, and, and I think I got the wrong one up here. Let's get these right. Okay, here we go. And I'll, I'll post this so everybody can, can see it. I read this every single morning and it's a more of an adv advanced uh, idea and understanding. You can all say this prayer. So I'd like to go through the prayer and then explain it. So I exist as a conceptual identity, an idea imputed upon collections labeled mine, collections labeled body, and collections labeled experiences. I'm an ethereal and wondrous entity, blessed with infinite potential and an unlimited capacity for good. These collections and identity are not static elements, but instead are dynamic processes existing interdependently in a state of constant and infinite change. My reality is a subjective interpretation, subjective interpretation of an objective world perceived through limited sense perceptions and understood by way of a concept, collective conceptual construct, which serves as a beneficial interface with my environment. My liberation is contingent 
on my ever-deepening understanding of this truth. Therefore, my practice is the daily cultivation and embodiment of this truth, leading to its direct experiential realization, which is awakening. I, this is taken from our text, Tibetan Buddhist Essentials, and it's kind of, the, it, it's in volume two, and it's the final conclusion of the whole chapter on self and mind and person and what it all is. I was trying to just tie it all together into an affirmation that I could read every day, and by, by, that, by that force, habituating myself to this view so I really understand it, you know, wholeheartedly. I'd like to just take a second and go through a, a couple of the lines. So first of all, I tried to make this really in a nutshell. I tried to cut through all the uh, vocabulary and terminology and just try to make this really easy to understand. So I exist as a conceptual identity and idea. Boy, that's hard to believe, isn't it? When you look at Jen, does she look like an idea? Huh? No, she doesn't. She looks, but nevertheless, we're going to talk about this more, but this is really the Buddhist idea of what we are. Uh, imputed upon collections labeled mind and collections labeled body. This is what we talked about last week with the five aggregates. The five aggregates are really only two things. They're the components of body and mind. So when we say that uh, our identity or self is imputed upon collections of mind and collections of body, it means that through through those two through those aggregates, um, we then form the idea that these things are are us, right? We 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 create this idea. And then all the things within our experience, we all tie it together with this idea of I, this idea of self, I am. It's like a story we tell about ourselves, yeah? Okay, um, and then it says, I'm an ethereal and wondrous entity. Ethereal being like clouds are ethereal, mist is ethereal, right? Real, but not so tangible. This is the idea of self. Self is real. There's no doubt about it. I have an identity. The Buddha had an identity. The Buddha said, I want you to do this. I want you to do that. The Buddha says, I'm hungry, bring me some food. The Buddha used pronouns. The Buddha had an identity. The Buddha shared his experiences. The Buddha talked about his life. Of course, the Buddha had an identity, right? And, um, and so, um, but, but it is ethereal-like, right? When we think about who we are, I mean, the body's physical, but it's not. But we're not the body. The mind is 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 substantial, but we're not the mind. We're, we arise from it, and I I had a little difficulty trying to remember exactly the philosophical understanding that my school positive of why we're not the body and why we're not the mind. And from what I remember, it was basically around the idea is that it's because we really don't have much control of over either the body or the mind. They kind of do their own things. And the idea, if you were the mind or if you were the body, somehow you would have complete control over them. 
And uh, you can look that up on, on your own. I couldn't find my old notes for that. But nevertheless, Buddhism asserts that clearly what you imagine as yourself is not really the body or mind. It's this identity that is contingent upon those, those things, right? It emerges from the, the combination of mind and body. And so the, and so the concept of self is quite ethereal. Like even right now, we're really having our, we're really having some trouble getting our mind around. Well, exactly what do you mean? It's, it's not so clear. And being wondrous in this, in this way, when you first learn that you're just an idea and you're not as substantial as you think you are, I think some people feel quite let down because who really wants to be ethereal, right? As human beings, we want to, no, I want to really exist. I want to be, I want to be substantial. I want people to remember me when I pass away. I want people to know about my accomplishments. We want to be substantial desperately. And so when we first teach this, uh, I think a lot of people are, are a little bit left, let, let down, maybe a little bit nervous about it all, but uh, this line about that we're wondrous entities. When you become familiar with, when you become familiar with this, and you become comfortable with it, all of a sudden the other thought comes in. You start to realize just how wondrous of a being the Buddha is telling us we are. The Buddha is telling us that we're so much more magical than we think we are. Maybe magical is the wrong word. We're so much more wondrous than we think we are. We think we're just these solid blobs eating and pooping and causing trouble around the planet. And the Buddha comes along and says, oh, you have no idea of what a spectacular being you are. That you actually exist as an ethereal thing. Yes, Yes, you're, you're tied to the earth with a body and you have a mind, but those things aren't you, you're this other thing. So when you get comfortable with this idea, you start to understand the Buddhist pointing to something miraculous of what miraculous beings we are, blessed with infinite potential and an unlimited capacity for good. It doesn't matter who we are, if we're Bill Gates, if we're the Dalai Lama, if we're the Pope, every one of us is gonna pass away with without reaching our full potential. There is no end to our potential of any one of us. Nobody has ever gotten to the point where they say, I can't go any further. It's always there for us if we can if we can get to it. And I and I do believe that we all have this unlimited capacity for good. But of course our afflictions and our shared human limitations get in the way. The next line is these collections and identity, and remember that identity is also a collection. Identity is a collection of memories, experiences, moments of experiences, likes and dislikes and thoughts and beliefs. There's all kinds of components to identity, but they're not static elements. Instead, every aspect of ourselves are a dynamic process existing interdependently in a state of constant and infinite change. Changes in the body affect the self. Changes in the mind affect the self, and changes in the mind affect the body, changes in the body affect the mind. They're all interdependent, 
and they're all existing in this as a dynamic process. The great philosophers often say when you talk about when you talk about a person, you're really you need to use verb like language. We don't define a human being by what it is, but what it does. This is the idea. This is uh, in 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 the existential movement, Heidegger, and this is also the way Buddhism sees ourselves, right? And then we get into uh, uh, this part gets a little bit into reality. My reality is a subjective interpretation, which means my personal interpretation of an objective world that there is an external world. Now, that is another huge topic of debate in Buddhism, whether there's an objective world or whether it's uh, a, an imputation from our subjective world. In my school, the Gelug school, uh, the great Indian uh, uh, Buddhist master Chandakirti, along with Sankapa, um, lay a very convincing argument, which is the one I follow, that there is no doubt that there's an objective world. It cannot be denied. The Buddha never denies it. Theravada Buddhism doesn't deny it. Theravada Buddhism believes in this idea of, of uh, aspects of the world like atoms that are, that are built upon uh, uh, and uh, create bigger things. And so uh, uh, Mahayana kind of moved away from it, like we talked about with the Yogacara school, that quite possibly everything exists just subjectively from our own minds. But uh, Sankapa uh, clearly has the most convincing argument that that's preposterous. If you want to read more about that, I have a lot of this material in Tibetan Buddhist Essentials, Volume 2. Uh, and so we have this subjective interpretation and of an objective world perceived through limited sense perception, right? Now, what that means is that, yes, I, I perceive the world through my sense organs. I hear, I see, I smell, but only what the human senses can observe, right? I can only see what the human eye allows me to see, my hearing, my, my smell. Now, you can imagine things like, uh, other animals like a dog who can hear much better than humans or smell much better. There's uh, there's insects and birds that can see a range of color that human beings don't. So we never really see the world. We see an interpretation of the world through our human senses. And what's more important, we then further interpret it through our minds, of, of through our likes and dislikes, our beliefs, things like that. So we're always, we're always interpreting the world. We never really see the world the way it is. So that's what we mean by limited sense perception. And then understood by way of collected conceptual construct. This matrix, this collective conceptual construct is your understanding of the world, which has been built Ever since you were a child, you learned about the world through your, from your parents, through school. Uh, we're talking about social values. We're talking about social conditioning. We're talking about causes and conditions. We never see the world mentally as the world is. We see it through our conceptual construct. Our conceptual construct includes all the labels of all the things in your room right now that you're looking at, right? Lamp, table, this, that, along with the function of each one, along with the value of things. You know, killing is bad, helping old ladies is good. These things we learn. This is our conceptual construct. 
And of course, it changes, you know, depending on cultures and, and environments. <clears throat> but we perceive the world through those, con that, that conceptual or that collective conditioning, right? And, but this serves as a beneficial interface with our environment. There's nothing wrong with this con collective conceptual construct. It's a needed, essential uh, aspect of our lives. And you know, you never have a choice. You can't turn it off and it, it would create itself. And it's there, it's beneficial in the simplest way. Just knowing the difference between poison and food is some of the most basic things that this collectual concert does. Knowing the difference between safety and, and uh, another difference between a bunny rabbit and a lion, which one to run from. This is how it, uh, it benefits us. And then lastly, <clears throat> my liberation, awakening, uh, enlightenment is contingent. Is, this is necessary for my, my ever deepening understanding of this truth. Through understanding this, this is how we awaken. This is right view. Therefore, my practice is a daily cultivation and embodiment of this truth leading to a threat to experiential realization, which is awakening. We say this in our, our prayers, right? Our, our, uh, our altruistic affirmation. And, um, and we, um, uh, and of course, what we're talking about is the true nature of ourselves and the true nature of reality. Understanding that is enlightenment itself, right? A direct experience of it is enlightenment. A conceptual understanding of it, like we're doing right now, is where we start. But at some point, a little bell goes off and you have that aha moment and you go, oh, I, now I, I finally get it, right? On some kind of experiential level, you get this prayer, this affirmation. <clears throat> okay, boy, did that take a long time to go through. I hope, are y'all still there? Okay, I have a lot of material to go through. So that gives us a little, and you can play that back, you can play the recording back like a thousand times until you understand that. I wanna move on to the next thing of what samsara is. So um, samsara arises from our confusion and our ignorance pertaining to one particular thing our ignorance to uh, our, our, the true nature of self, right? And um, it's an ignorance that, is an exa that exaggerates the view of self. So out of all the things that we can be ignorant about, what, what's at the very root of it all is we are in samsara and we are unenlightened and we are suffering because we have an exaggerated view of the self. <clears throat> and this is considered one of the wrong views. What I just shared with you was an affirmation on right view. But samsara is that we have a wrong view. And what is that? We believe the self is more real than it is. Yes, the self is real, undeniable. But we exaggerate that into believing it to be more, and this morphs into the idea of soul. And in the wonderful words of the Dalai Lama, which I'll call up next, we have, <clears throat> we conceive of a self-instituting I, which means a self, it almost creates itself. 
that is an exaggeration beyond what actually exists. We conceive an I that does not appear to be designated upon the aggregates. Rather, it seems almost as if it's its own separate identity. What word would we use for something like that? Anybody? Would we use the word soul, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. I got another one for you. I'll, I'll share all these memes too. I see you all scribbling, scribbling down as fast as you can. I'll share these for everybody. And then all this material is going to end up in our text, uh, Secular Buddhist Essentials, which we're going to be teaching hopefully over the summer. Tsongkhapa, the great, who's my favorite uh, philosopher, Tibetan or non-Tibetan, I think he's one of the great Buddhist philosophers. The fact that a substantially existent agent cannot be found. Now, agent is the doer of things, right? An agent, the doer of, of activities, the writer of a letter, the listening to the sound, the choosing of the ice cream. That's the agent, the agent of choice, right? So the fact that a substantially existent agent cannot be found does not mean that that person or agent doesn't exist at all. They exist imputedly and effectively. So oftentimes in Buddhism, this mere I we talked about, which is self, which is identity, is often referred to as just person, right? The person is just, is not the body, is not the mind, it's this identity, right? Um, so, and remember here, they're talking about the fact that a substantially existent agent, meaning again, a soul, like, like we, could, we could cut David open and we could find this little bit uh, called substantially existent agent and pull it out of him and hold it up. Here it is, I found it. Now he can never pick the right ice cream flavor, right? Um, though that doesn't, we, that doesn't substantially exist, it's, it exists conceptually, right? We talked about what we are as an idea. So the agent of agent of choice, the agent of activity, of doing, the agent of thinking, that agent is a conceptual agent. And remember the conceptual things can be just as real as physical things. When you look at laws of countries or you look at things like marriage, there's so many conceptual things in our world that we take clearly as being real. Um, so, but it doesn't mean that they don't exist. They exist imputedly. Imputedly means that I put upon the world the agency or the I, right? Imputedly. Every time you say a sentence and you say, I'm going to the store, I'm listening to music, I'm having hot dogs and beans for breakfast. Every time you use the word I in a sentence, you are imputing identity upon the world in yourself. That's what they mean by imputing. Putting, right? You're putting I upon things. Every time, every time you, you use a friend's name, oh, David's going to the garden. That is, I'm imputing him, his, his identity onto that thing. And then I thought it was really interesting that Sankapa used the word effectively. They exist imputedly and effectively, meaning 
it really works, right? Effectively, that it really works. It's not just simply, you know, oh, a big deal. I'm going to put the label I onto something. It's like, oh no, it works much deeper than that. It's an it's an amazing, effective aspect in our lives, right? <clears throat> okay. I hope I'm being clear today. Um, okay, so this is how samsara is created. It's samsara is created. All of our problems, all of our suffering, all of our woes, all of our complaints are all come down to one thing in Buddhism. Because you don't know who and what you are, how you exist, how you interact with others, how you interact with your environment, basically how life works, right? You, you didn't get an owner's manual for yourself or life when you were younger. Because you're confused about how you work and how things work, that's the source of all of our problems. I have problems using the word all of our problems. I have a few <laughs> problems that probably aren't reliant on that. Okay, now I have another affirmation that's from the SBT group that, again, I didn't, I didn't, I chose not to put it into the practice guide, but I'm going to uh, put it on here, and then also uh, I'll make it available. I say them every day in my morning affirmations. You can do the same. I like this very much. This is, uh, I call it the affirmations of suffering, and um, uh, let's read it first and see if you understand it, and then I'll babble a little bit. A couple words I want to help. A lot of people have problems with understanding the word reify, the second word, reifying. To reify something is to make something more real. You could also use the word exaggerate, right? Like we were talking about that one of our problems is we exaggerate the I. And, and seeing it as something more substantial, more real than it is. That, that's the definition of reifying, okay? And then the other word is ethereal in the second part. And ethereal, again, means cloud-like or, you know, mist is ethereal, bubbles are, are, are ethereal, air, oxygen is ethereal, you know, things you can't see, you can't touch kind of thing. Okay, <clears throat> through reifying my identity, myself, I reify my vulnerability. Through reifying my vulnerability, I reify my problems. Through reifying my problems, I reify my suffering. Conversely, through realizing the ethereal nature of my identity, I realize the ethereal nature of my vulnerability. Through realizing the ethereal nature of my vulnerability, I realize the ethereal nature of my problems. Through realizing the ethereal nature of my problems, I realize the ethereal nature of my suffering. So again, like in the beginning, through exaggerating my myself, my identity, I exaggerate my vulnerability. Why? Because the more real you see yourself, that I, the more the more harm can come to it, right? When you realize that I is just a concept, an idea, an identity, it's it's pretty hard to damage it, right? You could damage your reputation. You know, there is some damage. But generally, if you realize yourself as being an ethereal, uh, or you realize yourself as just being this idea, when somebody calls me a fat monk, it doesn't bother me so much. It's like, well, who, who's it insulting, right? I'm just an idea. And so this is, the, the first couple lines of this is how we fall into samsara. 
This is the birth of samsara. Through exaggerating myself, I exaggerate my vulnerability. Through exaggerating my vulnerability, I exaggerate my problems and challenges. Through exaggerating my problems, I exaggerate my suffering. Isn't that fascinating? So the first lines are samsara. And now the next lines are nirvana. Through realizing the ethereal nature of myself, I realize the ethereal nature of my vulnerability. Now, again, we're not saying self doesn't exist or identity. And equally, we're not saying vulnerability doesn't exist. We're just saying we exaggerate that vulnerability. So when you realize the, the proper level of, 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 uh, of reality of our identity, we realize the same thing of our vulnerability. And when we realize the ethereal nature of our vulnerability, that it's not quite as real as we think it is, well then guess what? Our problems don't seem so real. And then when we realize that our problems aren't so real, then clearly the suffering that arises from those problems aren't so real. Now I do have to mention, I take poetic uh, license with this because not all of our suffering is ethereal. For all of you who have had a toothache or any other problem, broke a leg or something, not all problems are ethereal. A lot of our suffering is very, very real. This is just saying just generally, and it's saying the most, the, the, you know, most of our suffering tends to be on the ethereal side. And this kind of suffering is more our daily worrying and our daily obsessiveness and all of those things. Any questions about this? Uh, it's kind of pretty, isn't it? This, this means a lot to me. I get great clarity from this. Okay, I got to get going. I got running out of time. I told you there was a lot to cover. I so then, oh, yes? You got a question in the chat. Is it a good one? <clears throat> Fairly. <laughs> I don't know the answer, so... <laughs> Lisa's asking, could ethereal be replaced with emptiness? No. Emptiness means something really different. Emptiness means the absence of essential essence. Which sounds similar, doesn't it? Because we're talking about that a soul is the idea that we have an essential essence. But no, that would just confuse us. I would leave that term out of this, yeah. If you want to talk about that more later, I'll do it with you. <clears throat> okay, now we've talked about samsara is created because we exaggerate this idea of self. Well, guess what nirvana is? Do I have any, do I have any guesses? <laughs> have you noticed in Buddhism, we work with a lot of opposites, right? The opposite of suffering is happiness. What do you think nirvana is? This is an easy one. Somebody's got to know this one. If samsara is the huh? realizing your realizing your ethereal nature. Ah, good job. Nirvana is realizing and experiencing the true nature of self or identity, mirai person, not soul. You will always have a self. Isn't that good news? Whether you're now, whether you're a Bodhisattva, whether you're a Buddha, whether you don't re, aren't going to take rebirth anymore and you live in some other kind of state, 
you'll always have a self, no matter what. And <clears throat> some schools of thought get into this idea of non-dual uh, uh, philosophy, which is far too much to get into today. But the idea is that at the ultimate level, that subject and object, self and object, merge into one thing, and it's the ultimate nature of reality. My school of Buddhism completely denies it. Tsongkhapa says, completely ridiculous. No matter how much you feel, because in meditation, you often have really strong feelings that you're one with everything, that you're connected with all things. But Tsongkhapa would say, well, no matter how strong it feels, when your meditation is over, it's always you that had the experience, right? It's always, a, it's always you that's now hungry after meditation and need a sandwich. You, we can't get away from self, and we have no reason for it. Self is, 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 uh, is our way of interacting with the world. So it makes, it, it makes everything we do and experience, it puts it all in one basket that we can relate to as this thing called us, you know? Um, so let's talk a little bit more about what is enlightenment. And I have another lovely meme. I'm the meme man today. And this is by a wonderful scholar, <laughs> Venerable Tarpa. Uh, so now we were talking before about, you know, there's not one distinct view that I could say every, that, that, of course, this is what the Buddha meant. A lot of great scholars for thousands of years had a different opinions. How can I add my hat to that? So all I can do is share my hypothesis, my final belief on this, which is based on a lot of great philosophers. This is based on Tsongkhapa and Chandikirti, uh, and is what is enlightenment? From the wisdom of the true nature of ourselves in reality, we purify our mental factors, which allows us to transcend our afflictions. From this arises a purified perspective and perception which is enlightenment. So, so far I like this, you know, but I, I'm kind of worried that in a couple of weeks, I'm going to say, oh, was I wrong about it? No, but I think I, I think I, I got, I knocked this one out of the park, as they say in baseball. <clears throat> I think this is pretty good. So we always talk about that wisdom, understanding the true nature of ourselves and reality. Uh, through that, we purify our mental factors. <clears throat> we did a class on mental factors a while back. We have a video on them. Mental factors is a lot, a lot of the aspects of the mind that are key to us. It includes things like <clears throat> the building blocks of cognition, but more importantly, things like belief, fears, aims, likes, dislikes, uh, uh, views, uh, theories. It even has some strange things like sleep is one of the mental factors. Uh, it has a lot to do with <coughs> um, uh, um, effort, intention, volition, all of these things kind of fit together. And yes, it is the, the component of the fourth of the five aggregates or collections. <coughs> one second, please. Um, through the mental factors, we perceive the world and we project our world. It's like putting on a pair of, of colored glasses. We see the world through, I'm going to put on a beautiful pair of purple glasses. I see the world through my views, my intentions, my likes, my dislikes, my cultural conditioning, <clears throat> my education. 
you know, we don't just perceive the world, we see it through all of those things. That's our, those are our mental factors. So <clears throat> the reason we're not enlightened is because uh, of our mental factors. We have wrong views, which you could, you could say is, is basically like wrong mental factors. And the idea when we purify those and we develop right views, well, that's where our afflictions first rose from, from having wrong view, from mental factors. So <clears throat> once we develop right view, we, uh, uh, once we develop uh, uh, proper mental factors, which again is right view, this uh, allows us to easily transcend our afflictions. <clears throat> now, once we develop that, arises uh, purified perspective and perception, which is enlightenment. I made a mistake before. I talked about proper mental factors as being right view. Right view is, is more at the end here. Right view is a purified right perspective. Right, right view is right perspective and perception, which means you uh, you you perceive the world more correctly, and <clears throat> your view towards the world is more correct. Right, that is the definition of enlightenment. So now this is one that you just have to sit on and read a little bit and think about. So I'm be fascinated by having some conversations with every everybody about this one. Um, does anybody have any questions about it before we move on? <clears throat> okay, lastly, I got one more to touch on. The question that everybody was wanted to know all about last time, what is reborn? And boy, these could all be separate classes, but I wanted to touch on to this and what is reborn. So we talk about the self being this ethereal thing. Uh, the bad news is the self isn't reborn. Oh, I'm so sorry to tell everybody that the self is not reborn. <clears throat> what is reborn is our very subtle mind. Now, this comes from the tantric tradition. This comes from my school, the Gillick school. And this is, of course, the Dalai Lama's view on what is reborn. So, <clears throat> uh, in the five aggregates, we talk about the body and, uh, and the mind being separate. But as we get to subtler levels, they start to merge and they start the separation between those becomes far less. Some of you that study philosophy might know about this idea of the mind body problem in philosophy where uh, the West has this idea that mind and body are separate, and because mind is conceptual and mental and body is physical, how can they relate to each other? How can they communicate, things like that? Buddhism has never had this problem. From the very beginning, Buddhism sees no division, actual division between the two. We can look at them separately, but according to Buddhism, there is no division between mind and body. They actually always exist together. In fact, we talked about last week, uh, David brought up this great point, is that, well, we can talk about these things, we could talk about self, that you're yourself and you're not the body or mind. But guess what? It seems like you need a body to have that self. And it seems like you need a, a, a mind to have that self. So this is the most important thing. And uh, Sankapa is one of the few philosophers that addresses this, and, and he said that this is the big mistake people make, that 
Of course, human beings, we use deconstruction, philosophical deconstruction in everything we do to understand things. In science, in philosophy, in psychology, when we want to understand how something works, we take it apart and we try to figure out what individual parts do, and then and, and that's that's the method we use. And it's a wonderful one. But the big problem that everyone makes is they dissect everything and then but at the end they forget to put it all back together again. So now I can sit here and tell you, oh, what you are is the self. But honestly, it would be inaccurate. Now, in a philosophical way, in when we're deconstructing the, the, the body to understand that, that can be an appropriate phrase. But like David pointed out, it's not correct because in the real world, you can't divide these things. They're all interdependent upon each other. So Sankapa uh, has the idea that we use this deconstruction process to understand things. But once we get to the, the bottom point, like we are, of what self is, the job isn't done. We have to now turn around and rebuild the organism or the, or the object until uh, we get to a balanced or more proper view. This is especially important in the teachings of emptiness, because emptiness in this, you can almost just deconstruct the whole world until there's nothing left. But that's not the way the world exists. Right? Just because you can prove that something doesn't exist conceptually. I got this big water tumbler, right? Conceptually, I can sit there and I can tell you all the reasons why, on a philosophical level, this cannot exist. But guess what? It exists. It's real. So that's the same thing here. So there is no division in Buddhism between self, mind, and body. We, we deconstruct them philosophically so we can understand them. But the, it, the organism doesn't exist without each one of those things, unless you're talking about somebody in a coma that's just in a vegetative state. That would be a different story. But for, you know, for actively working beings, all of these things are essential and they're interdependent. They don't exist without each other, right? Okay, with that said, we have, according to Tibetan Buddhism, we have three minds, gross mind and body, one's ordinary physical and mental aggregates or collections, these gross minds and bodies dissolve at death. Sorry, everybody. And guess what? Self dissolves with it. The self is not permanent. Remember, we talked about that. It's not enduring. It's not an essential element that survives death. The self dies. Number two, subtle mind and body, often referred to as the wisdom body or light body in Tibetan Buddhism. The subtle aspect of one's mind and body during dreams, <clears throat> deep states of meditation, and at the time of death. These subtle minds and bodies also dissolve at death. Number three, very subtle mind and body, also known as clear light mind in Tantra. At this subtlest level, Body refers to very subtle winds upon which the very subtle mind rides. They use the word wind. It's a Tibetan word called lung, and it really does mean wind, but clearly that's not what the Tibetans are talking about. They're just talking about this an energy, right? I, I hate to use other words because it could confuse things. I, I don't want to use the word consciousness. Um, and, of course, I can't use the word mind because we're using 
this pertains to the body. So we're just going to leave it with wind and, and understand that that's a poetic term. It's not, you know. Um, so this subtle wind upon which the very subtle mind rides. It's said that at this very subtle level, mind and body are not subst substantially different, sorry. These very subtle mind and body are beginningless and endless, and at death do not dissolve, but transmigrate into one's next lifetime. So there you have the big question everybody was bugging me with. What part of me is reborn? Everybody wants to know. That's what it is. It's that very subtle mind and body. Now, in other language, it, from other traditions, many would say that what is reborn is our, <clears throat> our karmic and mental continuum, which to me means exactly what they just said here, this very, very subtle. And what that means, it's the momentum and flavor of the mind and karmic momentum that moves forward. We talked about karma. I think the best way of looking at karma is seeing karma as a momentum related to our volition. Volition is our intentional action. So we do things. Whatever you do, there's a bit of a momentum that goes along with it because for everything you do, there's a result of that doing. Sometimes it can be so subtle you might not notice it, but generally you talk to somebody, there's results happening from everything we do. <clears throat> and so uh, that's that those results, it kind of gets to be like a snowball you're pushing down a hill. It, it creates a momentum. So the actions that you have, now these are actions of mind, mind, body, or speech. Actions of mind can be choices that we make. Actions of speech are the things we say to everybody. And actions of body, of course, would be just action. <clears throat> those all, when we act, they all produce results. And those results influence our, the next things we act on. So this momentum in life, this motion forward in life, is really what I see as karma. That's what I see. That's my idea of karma. So that motion doesn't, if you believe in rebirth, another disclaimer, we're a secular Buddhist group. Many of us believe in rebirth. Many of us don't. That's irrelevant. We're simply trying to share here what Buddhism says about rebirth. We're not trying to convince everybody that rebirth is real. That's up to you. But for those of you that have a belief in rebirth, the idea is that momentum of this life doesn't stop at death. That energy keeps moving forward. And it's a karmic momentum having to do with our volition, but it's also a mental momentum. So things like if you were good at music in one life, they say that possibly you'd pick up music easier in your next life. You know, there's some kind of flavor of the life that moves forward if you believe in those kind of things. So that's the answer to your big question. Man, I think I'm at the end of my, my list of notes. Oh my goodness, I can't believe I made it through it all. Does anybody have any questions about the self? Wow, I think I set some kind of a record. I was telling friends before in the Theravada tradition, uh, from the very beginning till now, there's always one monk whose job is just to teach self. One expert above all others, 
the, his only job is to teach self because it's such a complicated subject in Buddhism. And so now I think I've reached the, I think I've accomplished that role. <laughs> I'm now the self teacher. <clears throat> I'm just being silly. Would anybody like to share? Jennifer? So, so wouldn't you say then that this is like the main focus of our practice? This is what we should be focused on. If this is what's going to bring us to enlightenment and nirvana, understanding this, 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 this is it right here. In a, in a nutshell, everything we talked about is incorporated into right view. Right view is what enlightens us. The, the little piece, uh, uh, the, the meme I gave on enlightenment that I wrote is my thoughts on, you know, if you really want to get it down, that's what it is. What we're really trying to do is purify our mental factors. And through that, uh, that's how we move forward. We enlighten our mental factors. We're trying to develop right perspective. In Buddhism, everything in life is perspective. Your reality is different from everyone else's. It's your perspective. And perspective is another word for view. So we say right view, we mean, we mean proper or correct perspective. So that is enlightenment. Enlightenment is right view. I'm, I'm doing some bold statements today. I hope they don't come back on me. David. Um, that was a great, great talk. Uh, and I've got loads of questions from, from the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> just, just one, um, this, uh, this momentum, where, where and how does it exist after death before being reborn? Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't, I don't know that rebirth is real. I don't have any conclusive proof. To me, I, I take rebirth personally as a belief uh, currently. I'm, I'm always willing to change my mind just because it seems like one of the better hypotheses out of the group. But I don't know that rebirth exists. So therefore, to tell you, well, how does that momentum move forward? I really don't know. Maybe, you know, I would give you an answer like, like in science, they talk about energy is never destroyed. It just moves into another form, maybe something like that. But I can't give you any con conclusive advice on that. Uh, okay. Or just, you know, I mean, Indians have, uh, uh, have wonderful ideas of, uh, like from, um, like from the Bhagavad Gita that they have beautiful ideas of how this momentum of the universe exists. And the idea that I believe uh, first uh, evil pushes and then goodness, goodness has to counter and always wins. And it creates the wheel of momentum of the universe itself. It puts the whole universe into motion along with all of our daily problems and everything else so there's a lot of views on that but nothing uh, i can really okay thanks <laughs> scott yeah you're welcome yeah um well yeah it was a great talk <clears throat> thank you very much for that um i just want to clarify one thing that we gently touched on last week and, and nirvana is realizing and experiencing the true self of identity which is statement you said. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Great. All right. So, um, 
the, the practice then essentially is to deconstruct I. The practice is to understand what I is, and deconstruction is one of the ways we go about that. Now here's, I had to be careful with what you said. Here's why. In uh, Hinduism, Brahmanism, awake enlightenment is realizing your true self. In Buddhism, it's realizing the true nature of self. So they're very similar, but you can see they're not the same thing. Because Buddhism is saying there isn't that soul, that the true nature of self is that it's mm. ethereal mm. and conceptual and it dies at, at, at death along with it. So I had to be careful how I answered that. <laughs> so deconstruction is one part. Yeah. And, 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 and what other practices are we looking at to achieve so so we do two things in Buddhism. I once read this beautiful passage and I agreed with it so much until I realized it was wrong. And it was by a brilliant philosopher. He said, the whole path of Buddhism is, can be seen as deconstruction of removing all falsity and all, until only the good remain. You guys have probably read that it's really famous, but it's wrong. That's only half of it. The other half is that you have to learn. It's we're not just deconstructing. We're learning things that we didn't know before that chances are you wouldn't learn if there wasn't a Buddha scribbling a down for us or sharing it with us. So there's two things we can do. We can learn new things, especially directly and experientially on the cushion, new insights and ideas and thoughts come to us. We do, we use that to understand. And then also deconstruction is a way to understand. So I think it's kind of that twofold. And I wouldn't limit it to just that. I'm sure there's other ways as well. Listening to friends, listening to teachers, right? There's many ways we move forward. We, we practice on many levels, right? We work with our emotions. We work with our minds. We work with uh, our intentions and volitions. So uh, in Buddhism, it's holistic. We work in every way to move forward. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Donna? Hi. I just wanted to say that I thought your affirmation of true nature was a tremendous appreciation. I appreciated reading it. I appreciated everything about it. And it seemed to be an affirmation of your appreciation of yourself ourselves <clears throat> I I really wanted to I really wanted to to uh, to share the uh, that that idea that when you first read about no soul and other they can be kind of disheartening right can really take the wind out of your sails well what do you mean I'm ethereal you know I think it breaks a lot of people's hearts I think it broke my heart when I first read it and then one day I, I really realized what the Buddha was talking about, because Buddhism is often seen as, as nihilistic and pessimistic. And it's just because people don't understand it. You know, the, the Buddha was a realist. He, he believed like a good doctor, you know, whether you like it or not, you have to know you have the disease. You have to know that it's a bad disease, it's a serious disease, and then we treat it. So the Buddha was good about that. But the Buddha's message, when you understand it, is one of unbelievable positivity. The third noble truth. That's what Nirvana I is possible for everybody. 
So I wanted to get that across to people that what we're talking about here is we're trying to tell you, you exist in such a more miraculous way. You're not a little being trapped in a little box living on a little world. You are so much more than that. <laughs> Thank you, Donna. Tampa, we might need to meditate about this all week. <laughs> and we probably should. Huh? Let's do some meditations on self. I told you it was a tough topic. And I'm not leaving you out in the cold because next week, I decided I wanted to talk some more about this in a different capacity. I wanted to make it even clearer, like the distinction between mind and self, right? Of course, self is an aspect of mind, right? Because we're thinking, I am my car, you know? Uh, so, but then, well, so, so what's the difference between those? How do those, so I wanted to do a, a class on that, which would be lighter. And we could also answer more questions about this week's class. Darcy? Uh, thank you. For, well, well, lots of stuff. First of all, wonderful, wonderful teaching. Um, second you. is that um, the question I, that I had, I think you pretty much answered it, though. Um, I asked a while back. So in order, we need to have, you know, we have this, this self that, that always exists, and we need the mind in order to make things happen, but we also need the body to express it. Is that kind of where we're going? I don't know about that. But that, but that subtle one thing you, one thing you asked, one thing you asked last week, and I was wrong about. You said so. Can we can see the, Can we see the body as a container or a vehicle? And yeah. and I said yes. And then I remembered in my training that I was told that that wasn't appropriate because they're all dependent on one another. The body isn't a vehicle that's dragging around the mind and the right. self. They're all dependent. Now, it's easy to see the body as a vehicle because it's physical, because we know where the body goes, the mind and self also go with it. But nevertheless, we were instructed not to think of it that way. We were to think about them as being equally interdependent. Yeah. We'll have to talk about this more. You're right. <laughs> I have questions, so we have to yeah. have questions for the month day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we can. You can do those every day during meditation, and then you could put them on our our social media uh, groups as well. And uh, I'll be glad to answer anything you have. And of course, here we always have space to do for questions. But I think there's a lot to sit on. This is a, one of the deeper classes we've had. So I have a feeling you're going to be listening to the recording again. And uh, I think I did a pretty good job on everything. I'm, I'm really comfortable with it all. But again, like, like uh, David was saying, oh, is this the, the ultimate view? And I'm, I'm not claiming that. There's so many different views. And it has changed so much from the time of the Buddha. How can anyone in their right mind claim to know the Buddha's final view? This is just, uh, you know, what I've come, I've studied a lot and I've studied all the traditions and all the great scholars. And this is the conclusion that uh, I, I came up with. I wouldn't say I came up with because I'm siding on Sankapa's view. Sankapa's view to me has always been so brilliant. So uh, Chandakirti and Sankapa are my heroes. But then again, they have uh, 
they have a little bit of a different view than a lot of the other schools. So there's room for you to have your own opinions. Darcy? Well, just, yeah, and also science is catching up too. I mean, there's <clears throat> new things all the time. All and the that, time. Sometime it may back that, you know. And isn't it remarkable how Buddhism can still hold its head up after 2,600 years? When You know what I talked about with self? Do you know that that's the general consensus? Psychology is a huge field, and we all know there is no one psychological view. You know, everyone can have a different view, even, even more than Buddhism, right? They have millions of views. But the general, most common view of self, according to psychology, is the one I gave you today. That idea of that narrative, that idea, that person, personhood, selfhood, they call it. Isn't it amazing? And how isn't it amazing that Buddhism, after 2,600 years, can even be close to that? You know, all the other all the other religions posit a soul. And of course, psychology and science are very clear that sorry, we haven't found one. So I'm I'm always uh, amazed. Science is Buddhism's best friend. One more tool for us to 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 uh, examine Buddhism with. Buddhists aren't afraid of knowledge. We're brave. <laughs> hey, we're going on a little late. Can we wrap it up now? Okay, I don't want to make the recording too long. So again, if you have any questions, jump on our social media. I'll be glad to answer anything you have. So uh, with that said, um, oh, next week again. Uh, so the class for next week is going to be something like discerning the difference between body, mind, and self. It's a fascinating subject, by the way, you're going to enjoy it. So let's end today's class with our altruistic affirmation. And listen carefully to this, everybody. May all be healthy, may all be prosperous, may all be well, may all be present, free of past regret and future worry. May all abide in constant appreciation, which is a source of great joy and contentment. May all realize their true nature and the true nature of reality, which is awakening. Thanks everybody for coming. Remember the SBT community was created for one purpose, to support you, the practitioner. Thanks for coming, bye-bye. Thank you, Tapa. Anytime. Tapa. Anytime, okay. thank you guys. Bye-bye. Fantastic. <laughs>